This is Journey Church Podcast. Here at Journey, we believe in encountering God and embracing people. From wherever you're listening, we hope you are encouraged by this week's message. Come on. How's everyone doing? Oh, there we go. I know, I'm as surprised as you are. They let me back on stage. Can you believe it? That's crazy. Wild. I thought the last time was my last time preaching because, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a little rough, hey? I, I felt that in the room. But, uh, man, I love, I love getting the opportunity to share. And today, uh, Pastor Jess has given me uh, one of the, actually one of my favorite uh, passages. Um, Carmen was reminding me this week that uh, my first sermon ever was on this passage. I was 16 years old, and I don't know what it, what it is about the pastors you're under and them giving you hard verses to preach on. I think they're just testing you out a little bit. What can, what can this kid actually really do? But at 16, this was the, the same passage that I got to preach. And I remember I actually found the notes. And I just, I don't know if you've ever gone back and read something that you've written in, in previous. Did any of you guys journal? Any of you in here journalers? Or just, wow, nobody? You guys need to start journaling. How are people going to remember you when you die? Like, you got a journal. <laughs> I guess we have Facebook now and online. Who, who, who does something online? Your life will be seen online. Maybe you're like a vlogger, YouTuber. Anyone got a YouTube channel they want to shout out? Okay. Oh, come on, Journey Church. <laughs> Thanks, Abel. Um, go, go check out our YouTube channel. It's awesome. But, man, one of, the, one of my favorite things that I get to do as a pastor is actually uh, officiate weddings. Um, I love marriage. Does anyone love marriage? Oh, that's way too quiet in here for all the married people. Whoa, Pastor Jess, you might need to start doing a series on marriage. Uh, we need it. We need it. Uh, no, but I love, I love marriage. I love what it represents. Uh, and there's something special about two people looking at each other and saying, I love you. I love you. Isn't there something special about that? I love you so much. This is one of the most uh, you know, intimate and sacred moments of marriage, right? One of the most important moments in a, in a wedding ceremony is actually the, the vow exchange. And this is where the, the bride and groom spend countless hours crafting, trying to put into words what the other person means to them. And all these words usually okay, fall short because it doesn't really capture the heart of what you're trying to say to that person in that moment. Right? I don't know if any of you guys have, have written your own vows. Often many couples just opt to have their traditional vows spoken. Uh, but, you know, the couple gets up there, they stand in front of all their friends and family and before God, and they pour out their hearts. And I love that. I love that about, about weddings. See, vows are, are really a promise. They're a promise to be faithful no matter what. And that's why, you know, we say things like for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. It's a promise to have total allegiance to someone until death. That's pretty wild, hey? That's a crazy commitment. You know, uh, in, in a wedding ceremony, the couple, at the moment that they're giving their vows, they have no clue what, the, what is about to happen, right? They have no idea what's to come in their life. But in that moment, they make the most grand statements they could ever make. But what they're saying to their significant other is that you're my ride or die. You're the person that I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. There's something special about that. Maybe you've made that promise to someone. You know, maybe you want to make that promise to someone and, and you want them to make it back to you. Or maybe 
you know, you can understand how special that promise is to someone, but you don't really plan on making that kind of promise to anybody anytime soon. Or maybe you've made that promise, and someone has made that promise to you, but it's been broken. And if that's you, I'm, I'm really sorry. I can't imagine how difficult it would be to have that vow broken. See, marriage vows are the highest form of commitment and promise that a person can make to another person. And so when that promise is upheld, it's so special, powerful. But when that's broken, it can be devastating. Devastating to somebody. And so today, we want to look at a story from the book of Acts, Acts 5, about two people who made a promise to God that they chose to break. And I think that this will be helpful um, if you've made a promise to God ever and that you haven't been able to keep. And, and maybe when you look behind you at your, the rearview mirror in your life, there's a trail of failure or empty words or broken promises. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with the broken promises of God? And I wanted to start today talking about marriage because I think it puts us into the right framework when we begin to look uh, at, at this passage. And we've got an interesting one. Maybe I should say a challenging text this morning in, in Acts chapter 5. But if we remember uh, what has happened leading up to chapter 5 in the book of Acts, if you're new to church, the book of Acts uh, is the book right after the Gospels in the, in the New Testament. And so the Gospels are about Jesus and his life. And then right after Jesus dies, the Easter story happens, he resurrects the book of Acts is the next story, and it's the start of the church. The church that one day will expand all the way to here, where you're sitting today. And this is the, the, the birthplace of the church. And so if, if we remember correctly, you know, we remember a, an incredible time for the church. There was progress in the church. We see boldness and unity, and the generosity of the church is unmatched. God, by his Holy Spirit, is doing something remarkable in the early church. And as we look at chapter 2, 3, and 4, we see the disciples full of faith, empowered by the Holy Spirit, doing incredible things for God. Thousands, not hundreds, of people are coming to Christ. And this is where we're going to pick up today in Acts 4, 32 to 34. We've got to go back a chapter just to, to get the full context. This is what it says. All believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With the great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them. And there were no needy persons among them. For the time, for from time to time, those who owned land and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. And check this out. This next part is about uh, a guy named Barnabas. All right? And Barnabas, his giving is recorded in the Bible forever. Could you imagine that? That you have a gift that you give to the church, and it's recorded for thousands and thousands of years. People will know, this guy must have been a baller. Like, he must have given a huge gift, right? For his, his gift is recorded in Scripture. So Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles... Apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, 
sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That must have been a really big field. A lot of money. And what a way to encourage. I love his name, son of encouragement. And you want to be an encouraging person? Just drop some, some, someone some cash. Yo, bro, here you go. I will feel encouraged. If you want to give me some money, I will be very encouraged by you. See, if the book of Acts were to end at chapter 4, we would have a misunderstanding that, you know, life is kind of perfect for the early church right now. But it, but it really wasn't. You know, in chapter 4, we learn that they've outlawed the preaching of Jesus. What we're doing right here, right now, was outlawed. You were not able to do this. And so the early church had some challenges that occurred. And so, so far throughout the book of Acts, we've seen God adding to the church. In Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The Lord has added so far in chapter 2, and so we've seen the Lord add. And then in, in, in chapter 4, he begins to do something else. He begins to multiply. In chapter 4, verse 4, in four, verse four thousands upon thousands more were added to those initially saved at Pentecost. And so we see God doing some, some math functions, right? He's adding to their numbers. He's multiplying their numbers. And now we're going to see the Lord perform another math function, subtracting. Two people in the church that he is going to subtract. Alan Redpath, who is a, a British evangelist in the 1900s, you know, he called this the blessed subtraction. You know, some denominations even record this as the third miracle that occurs in the book of Acts. And, and we're going to look at it today, and you can tell me if you think this is a miracle. And so, before we get there, you know, it's truth. The Lord does add, and the Lord does multiply, and the Lord does subtract. But one thing the Lord never does, he never divides. He never divides a church. See, people do that. We're good enough at doing that on our own. We're good enough at creating division and animosity. God never does that. He'll add, he'll multiply, and he'll subtract, but he will never divide a church. And so let's read in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira's story. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. It's interesting language. We just read about Barnabas and how he put his money at the apostles' feet. This chapter starts a little bit different. Then Peter said, Ananias, check this out, how is it that Satan has filled your heart and you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to just human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down dead, and a great fear seized all who had heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. See, if the story ended here, you would just think, man, that's some wild coincidence, right? That maybe this was just some tragic accident, that this man fell over dead at the same moment that Peter is correcting him. What are the chances of that? But then you keep reading. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, 
Is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out, and buried her beside her husband. And again it says, great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Can you imagine being in that church meeting? Everybody's just like, yo, I'm not going to give anything. I'm just going to stay quiet. I'm going to be against the walls. I don't know what God's doing right now, but it is not my time. It is not my time to go. Nobody's given anything anymore. They're just too scared. And so this story is a difficult one to process. And some of you might be thinking, you know, are we in the Old Testament? This kind of sounds like Old Testament, doesn't it? No, 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 no. This is, this is the New Testament. This is after Jesus. And so it seems that these people's sins against God cost them their life. And so it gives a whole other meaning to slain in the Spirit, hey? More like slain by the Spirit. Whew. When reading this story, we need to understand where the church was in chapter 5. At this point, the church has at least 10,000 people who have adopted Christ as their Savior and as their Messiah. All the people are operating with one mind, like we read in chapter 4. They're all in complete and perfect agreement. And with each other, they're sharing all that they have. They're selling their homes. They're saying, whatever need somebody has, somebody needs food, I'll give. They're generous. And so Luke, who is the writer of the book of Acts has been drawing a parallel with the book of Acts and the book of Genesis. And we've mentioned this before, that really the book of Acts is the beginning of the New Testament, much like the book of Genesis is the start of the Old Testament. And you can see in the first four chapters that, you know, we almost have like this new Eden, right? Kind of like we did in the garden. Harmony with God. And then a man chooses to take autonomy into his own hands and choose right from wrong for himself. And he does so with his wife standing right next to him. In the same way, Adam and Eve's sin, we saw a spiritual death for humanity. Here in the book of Acts, we see a physical death. What this is, is a reminder to all of us that although we have access to Eden, the garden, perfect unity with God, that every believer wants, that the world is really actually fallen. And we must still deal with the realities of sin. And that this is a choice for every single one of us. See, what, what's really happening, if you could just take a picture, visualize this in your mind with me, is there's a fight against what the Spirit wants and what our flesh wants. Every believer goes through this, and I'm sure you don't have to look far to find a way that the church or believers of Jesus have fallen into the trap of hypocrisy. That is to say, to do one thing or to say one thing and to do another. And so can you imagine with me for a second, Ananias and Sapphira, think of them meeting for the first time as they courted together the butterflies in their stomach. And they would have looked around at all the different possible people that they could date, marry, and they find each other. And they've got this puppy dog look in their eyes. They love each other. Maybe that's not how you guys fell in love. That's how I fell in love. Karma's actually there the first time I preached. 
And I'm like, that's when she knew. I'm convinced. 16 years old, she's like, I'm marrying that man. He looks so good on the stage. No, I'm just kidding. It was the complete opposite. <laughs> she was like, get me away from this guy. But just imagine with me. Ananias looked at Sapphira and their swoons, and, and they say these vows to each other on their wedding day, especially the part, till death do us part. And they had no idea that they would die within few hours of each other on the same day and that their names would go down in history as the two that the Lord subtracted from the church to make it pure. See, the thing is, the failure here for Ananias and Sapphira wasn't that they didn't give the right amount. Like, what we're not saying is that God's going to kill you because you don't give enough money. It's not what we're saying. Okay, so if that's in your mind, that's not what we're saying. Okay, it's that they misrepresented the number they gave. They were both lying. And you see, all they would have had to say to Peter is, hey, Peter, my wife and I sold some land, and our intention was to give it to the people in the church who could use the money, but we just, we just can't do that right now. we got some bills to pay. You know, we need some of that money to live on. So we're going to give this much. That would be honest, and that would be perfectly fine. But see, they, they saw people like Barnabas who get written about, and everyone's talking about, did you hear about Barnabas? He sold this land. He's got all this money. He gave it to the church. And they're like, mm, that, I like how people talk about Barnabas. Maybe we should sell some of our land. But then they kept some for themselves. So the problem is that they were dishonest. They said one thing, but they did another. They lied. And you're looking at this you know, marriage vow idea, as powerful as vows are, it's what happens after the vows that really matters. And that's not to say that words aren't important. They are, no doubt. You know, Proverbs 18.21 says, the tongue has power of life and death. Words matter. Vows matter. Promises matter. But as much as they matter, something else matters even more. Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 21. And he tells, uh, you know, a parable is a truth-revealing technique that Jesus used to describe spiritual realities. And he says, what do you think? You know, th there's a man who has two sons. He went to the first son and said, son, go work in the vineyard. And the son responds, I will not. But later, he changed his mind and he went. The father went to the second son and said the same thing. And he answered, I will. But then he didn't end up going. Which of the two sons did what the father wanted? And the people that day answered, the first. The first. See, it's, it's primarily our actions, not our words, that reveal our heart and disposition towards the Lord. So our words are important. But if they are, aren't supported by the actions, it means nothing. See, what we end up finding ourselves in, is this is what my old pastor used to tell me, is something called the integrity gap. Check this out. The integrity gap in our lives is determined by the distance between what we say or believe and what we do. And so the goal of the Christian life is to close the gap. So you trust God. That's great. So why are you so anxious? We've got to close the gap. You believe God is saved? That's wonderful. He saved you? That's wonderful. So why are you still trying to earn his love? 
we got to close the gap. God's changed your life. That's awesome. Why are you still going back to that sin? God is your provider. That's incredible. So why are you so stingy? Why is generosity so hard for you? We've got to close the gap. See, we all struggle with things like this. And the goal of the Christian faith is to close the gap. When I first became a, a Christian, you know, I remember coming from my old faith. I really, uh, I really feared God. You know, God was somebody who was far away, who, who took care of us. But he was kind of scary. He was kind of like a boogeyman my mom used to, like, tell me about that would just make me do the right things and not do bad things. And so I had a lot of fear. And funny enough, it, you know, most of my major mistakes in life were after I became a Christian. <laughs> because, oh, there's grace now. I'm like, oh, God forgives? God forgives? Oh, I can do anything I want. This is incredible. What a great truth. And I remember as soon as I became a Christian, I started doing dumb things. I think of anything dumb. I did it, okay? And it's because, oh, God forgives. Haven't you heard of the grace of God? What kind of Christian are you? God's grace. I can do whatever I want. It was just such a bad way of thinking. But I was so fearful about, about God before I became a Christian. And so I thought, oh, there's grace now. And I never had that before, before. And so I was too scared to do anything bad. But now God has given me forgiveness. And, you know, a prob- a, another part of it was is that I was, you know, 13 when I got saved. And, you know, I don't know if you know this, but when you hit puberty, there's a 700% spike in your hormones. Okay, you're trying to figure out why your kids are weird. Okay, I'm just going to let you know, they got 700% spike in hormones as soon as they hit puberty. That's why they're wiling out a little bit, okay? If you don't know what wiling out means, ask your kids. You know, one thing that I I really think about this story that kind of makes me sad is that the very first Christian funeral in the book of Acts was for two hypocrites. You know, a couple chapters later, we'll, we'll hear about in a little bit, is about Stephen, first martyr. And I'm like, man, that's a, that's a death. That's a funeral that would be a powerful one to go to. This one, not so much. And so when I read about Ananias and Sapphira, I don't want you to think that they just died and went to hell. That they just died. You know, what I believe, and this is my theology, is that I think that they were true believers. And my opinion is that they were believers in Christ. Because they had faith in Jesus. And so what we know is that you're not saved by your works. And so Ananias, he, he's not saved by selling his land and giving it to the church. He's saved by faith through grace, period. And so they died, and I believe, boom, they were in heaven with God. But see, God did remove them. God did subtract them. Ananias was a hypocrite, and his wife was party to it. And you might say, well, that's pretty harsh, Harmon. I mean, look around this room. How many of us could claim that we aren't hypocrites? Right? If we were in their shoes, would we act any differently? Uh, When I was growing up, I remember I came across this quote. um, and, And some people argue that it's not actually attributed to this person, but I think either way, it, it leaves the right message in the room. And it's by Gandhi. Okay? And I didn't just choose him because he's brown. But <laughs> Gandhi said this. Check it out. It'll be on the screen for you. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Because your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And, and I don't know if you know, Gandhi had the, 
the real representation of who Jesus was, or if he just thought of Jesus as a good teacher. And so the Jesus he's talking about in this quote might not even be the Jesus that we follow. But throughout history, it doesn't take us long to realize that the church and Christians have often looked nothing like Christ. And that's a problem. That's a gap. And so I remember seeing this quote early in my Christian walk, and I said, I will never be a Christian like that. I want people to look at me and see Christ in me. I want my words to match up with my actions. And sometimes I wonder if we pass over these stories, like the one in Acts 5, because we aren't comfortable with the idea of fearing the Lord. You know, whenever I hear people talk about the fear of the Lord, you know, it's mentioned in the book of Proverbs as the beginning of understanding, and people would always qualify the fear of the Lord. You know, they'd be like, you know, when we talk about fear of the Lord, we're not really talking about the fear. We're just talking about a reverence or an awe. You know, the way you would respect your dad, that's how you should respect the father. But I don't see that in the Bible. See, when I see people encounter God's glory, they fear to the point that they're on their knees saying, do not kill me, Isaiah. They, they fear him. Real, real fear. And we do this often with many things in the Bible. We try to make it a little bit more palatable, easier to chew on. We don't want to upset anyone. I remember one time I was preaching, and uh, before I got up to preach, the pastor said to me, well, you know, can you just make sure you don't go a little, like, so hard? Like, we've heard you preach before, but can you just tone it down a little bit? You know, we're in church, right? Like, this is Canada, right? You're not, like, you're not overseas or something. You don't have to go so crazy. You just tone it down a little bit. People are going to walk away if, if you keep preaching like that. Well, I mean, Jesus, people walked away when Jesus preached, and so if, if that's any indication of how we should preach, maybe I'm on the right path. And so my question for you today is, you know, do you like a tame God? Do you like a God that's nice and easy to follow? This story blows that out of the water, like many others do. You know, does your God or your Jesus just look like you? I mean, does the God that you follow, does he completely line up perfectly with your life and your beliefs? That everything that you agree on, everything that you think is right, is somehow what God thinks is right. And I want to push back on you a little bit here. Because if that's true, if your God looks just like you, you might not be following the God that's revealed through Christ in the Bible. See, God says things about himself. For example, in Isaiah 55, 8-9, this is what he says. God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. See, he is different than us. He thinks differently than we think. And so I would be careful before ever saying something along the lines of, well, I wouldn't follow a God who would blank. I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow a God who would blank. Fill in the blank for yourself. See, when you do that, what you're saying is that your understanding of morality, your understanding of what is right and wrong, 
is actually above God. And really, you've made yourself God. And so you might say, Harmon, I think you should have listened to that pastor. You probably should have toned it down a little bit. It's a hard pill to swallow. And you might say, that's harsh. But you have to look at what all God has done. Think about Jesus for a second. God sent his son for us. Listen, I have two sons. And you best believe there is no chance I would ever send them for you. I love my children. And you guys are great, don't get me wrong. You guys are great. But would I sacrifice my son for any of you in this room? No chance. No chance. I love my kids. And so as much as you mean to me, and, and we love you, don't get me wrong, we're pastors here. We love you. You're our family. But there's no way I'm sacrificing my son for any of you. But that's what God did. See, because his ways are different. The way he thinks is not the way that we think. The way he walks is different. And then, I can feel the tension in the room. Oh, man. See, I, I, I like to play this game because we, I, I really think sometimes we've created a genie in a bottle. We've tried to, to make God palatable. We've tried to make God into something that he never said he was. And don't get me wrong. God is gracious, merciful, loving. But there's a side to God that is full of justice and wrath. You know, one of my favorite things that I often hear, and I like to play this game a little bit, and it's called finish the verse. And, and oftentimes it's because we'll get up in church or in prayer times or in different times, and we'll read a blessing that God has given to his people, and we're like, yes, that's a great blessing. Amen. And I always play this game called finish the verse. And so there's this one verse in Romans 2, and this is what it says. It talks about God's kindness. And it says, or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance. Maybe you've heard that before. Well, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Doesn't that feel so good? God's kindness leads us to repentance. Have you ever read the rest of the verse? Here's the rest of the verse, verse 5. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God's will, God will repay each, each person according to what they have done. And I don't want that. And so it's nice to say, oh, God's kindness, it leads us to repentance. But what happens when his kindness doesn't lead you to repentance? You are storing up wrath against yourself. That's what the Bible says. New Testament, we're not in the Old Testament. New Testament, Romans And so I don't want that. I don't want stubbornness or an unrepentant heart. I don't want to store up wrath for myself. No, I, I really truly want God's kindness to lead me to repentance. That's what I want. And so there's probably something to be said about the, the nature of Ananias' and Sapphira's sins and our own temptations and sins. My guess is that most of us aren't flat out lying to the church or other believers we're lying about how much we give or don't. And that's probably not a challenge for many of us. None of you are selling your fields and giving it to the church, although if you want to, 
Pastor Dave's like, yes, yes, just kidding. But there's a hundred little ways that we cannot live up to God and who he's called us to be. See, maybe for you it looks like, you know, we don't speak up for what is godly or right because of fear of conflict. Or we can walk away from opportunities to share our faith with someone and for what Christ has done in our lives because of fear of rejection or that other people's opinions of what they think of us. So we deny them. You know, maybe you, you don't pray for someone who is sick because, you know, I don't want to look weird. And we can live these hidden Christian lives that we don't want to mess up our reputation. We don't want people to know, so we're kind of just hiding. So it doesn't always look like hiding your money or lying. So what do we do? What do we do when our spirit is willing and our flesh is not? And I would say that about you. Like, you're here today. Your spirit is willing, but your flesh is not. Your flesh is weak. And so what do we do when we find ourselves in the gap between what we believe about Jesus in our life and in our actions? What do we got to do? And that verse in Romans talks about it. It's have a repentant heart. We repent. And see, repentance has two key characteristics. The first is godly sorrow. You see, a life marked by repentance usually begins with godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets, but worldly sorrow brings death. See, there, there are two types of sorrow we experience. Worldly sorrow, which is a, a focus on self. It's me-centered. It results in sadness. And it doesn't result in change. And so feeling bad and repenting are not the same thing. Godly sorrow, this is what it is. Godly sorrow is an acute sense of sadness as a result of sinning against the Lord. See, godly sorrow realizes how bad we are, but it focuses on how gracious our God is. The difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow, worldly sorry, sorrow moves us away from God, but godly sour, so, wow, I can't even, ugh, ugh. Let me try that again. Worldly sorrow moves us away from God, but godly sorrow drives us towards the feet of Jesus. So what do we do with our failure, with our empty words, with our broken promises to God. You know, we, we don't pretend everything is fine. We don't make excuses for ourselves. We don't feel sorry for ourselves. We don't give up. We don't keep on doing what we've always been doing. There's only one way forward, and that is repentance. See, re repentance literally means to turn around. It's a, a military term that describes a soldier who is marching one way and then decisively turns around and starts marching the other way. It's a, in, a, in a spiritual sense, it's a change of mind and direction of your life. So it's not, it's not just your mind. It's not just thinking. It's not just thoughts. No, no, it's a decisive change of your mind and your life and your actions. So change your, both your mind and your life. See, worldly sorrow and godly sorrow share tears in common. But tears are not enough. 
It's what you do next that determines the path you travel down. Godly sorrow drives us towards Jesus. This is what 1 John 1.9 says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's God's promise to you. You may feel remorse about your sin, but the next thing you do is you've got to go to Jesus and allow him to fulfill his promise in our lives, to forgive us, to purify us. That is the point of the cross. So we don't have to hide from him. We don't have to be like Ananias and Sapphira and, and hide from the sin we've committed. No. We don't have to make excuses. We don't have to be weighed down by sorrow. We can bring that to Jesus and not hide from him. But there's still one more stage of repentance. And so there's sorrow in our heart, godly sorrow in our heart for the sin that we've committed against God. And there's tears. And and then we come to Jesus for that. We allow him to forgive us and we, we ask him to purify us. But the second characteristic of true Repentance is obedience. So we must walk out now in obedience to Christ. We can't go back to the old habits and the old ways. We can't just go back when we're repenting. We can't just go back to our old sins. We have to turn around and say, we're not going this way anymore. We're turning around. We're running from those things. They're the old, I'm the new. I'm moving forward. I'm obedient to Christ, not to myself, not to my flesh. The way forward is repentance. To walk into freedom, which means obeying Christ and not self. There's a gap between what we believe and how we live, and the only way to close that gap is through repentance. And it starts with sorrow. Listen, Do you think I want to preach this message? No. I don't want to preach this message. Everything inside of me says, don't say this. People won't like you anymore. People will think differently of you. They'll think you're hateful. They'll think the God you serve is hateful. And he's not. He's not. He's the most gracious being, most loving, kind person I've ever met in my life so much so that I gave up everything for him. But listen, there has to be a sorrow in our hearts for the sin that is an offense against God. But we don't stay there. See, so many people, they have this sorrow and they stay there. You can't stay there. We don't stay there. We go to Jesus for forgiveness, to be purified, and then we obey the ways of Christ. He walks with us, he heals us, and he redeems us. See, Ananias and Sapphira, even when they were confronted with their sin, chose to dig in. Say, nope, that's how much, we, that's how much money we got. And, er- and every day, God gives us the opportunity to say, I've sinned. I'm wrong. I need you to change me. I need you to change my heart. 
So I don't know about you, but I want to live a life obedient to Christ. Not walk in the ways of the world, filled with sorrow, but walk in the ways of Christ to fulfill all that I am to do in this earth. That's what I want to do. So I'm going to invite Abel back up. And I know this was a, a heavy message. I can see it on your faces. It's heavy. But it's okay if the truth is heavy because we have a God who walks with us. He doesn't let us carry it alone. And so, I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of my days and get to heaven and realize that I had made up a God in my mind that sounded like me, that looked like me, that believed all the things that I believed. No, God is different. And so I, I got I to come underneath that. I got to say, God, I'm not like you. God, if it was my choice, I would never have sent my son. But you did. You sent him, and he died on a cross for me so that I can have a relationship with you. I'll never understand it. I'll never, I'll never understand how you did that, but you did that. Your ways are different. Your thoughts are different. But help me close the gap. Help me close the gap. Help me walk in true repentance. So what I say I'm going to do, that I do. That when I say I'm a Christian, that I'm a Christian. It's better for you not to fake it. Listen, every single one of us in this room is a hypocrite in one way or another. We've all sinned against God, but his grace is there for us. If we confess, if we say, God, this is what I've done. There has to be that godly sorrow in us. That's the starting point. Then we go to Jesus. We ask for forgiveness. He purifies us. And then, once we've been made new, we walk in obedience. Be obedient to the ways of God. I'm going to pray, and, and Pastor Jess is going to close this message. I don't know how you're going to close it, but she'll, she'll do something. Jesus, we thank you for today. God, I pray for anyone's heart right now that is, um, feels troubled. One last thing I want to say. We're called to fear the Lord. But you know what's incredible about the Bible? There's 365 verses in the Bible that say, do not be afraid. See, whenever you encounter someone who is in fear of the Lord, God says to them, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And so although our posture is a posture of God, we know you're holy. We know you're real. And we have that, we have that awe and that respect for you. We fear you. You're powerful. You're almighty. And he turns around to us. There's a verse for every day of the year. And he says, do not be afraid. For I'm with you. For I'm with you. So God, thank you for you. Thank you that you're a God who is present. Thank you that you're a God who doesn't just leave us alone. But God, that you help us close that gap. That you help us walk in obedience. God, I pray right now that our hearts would be turned to you, that we would see you, we'd see your grace and your mercy and how they're available for us, that we wouldn't have a hard heart, we wouldn't keep back sin hidden away, but that we would be renewed in our minds and in our hearts. So we lift this up to you, God. God, I pray that you would seal this in our hearts, this truth, 
And God, if anyone is worried or anxious, you'd remind them that you're with them. You don't, you don't ask us to just be afraid. That you say, do not be afraid, because you are with us. So we pray this all in your mighty name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on Journey Church Podcast. For more information about our ministry, visit myjourney.church. Thank you.